Amen. Hey, if you would, grab a Bible, turn to the second book into that Bible, the book of Exodus. I'll begin in chapter 25 this morning, Exodus 25. If you don't have a Bible and a seat somewhere in front of you, just grab one of those. And if you don't own one, leave with that. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, As you turn there, let me just say I loved seeing that map of the entire world on our screen with the different places. God has allowed us from central Indiana to have a great privilege of seeing the gospel go forth to all the nations. And so we're passionate here for the nations. We're also passionate here for the neighborhoods that are right around us. And one of the ways that passion gets exemplified is that we believe God has called us to plant churches, even right here on the south side. And so in the fall of 2020, uh, if you're newer here, we planted Doxa Bible Church in Franklin Township. And then Lord willing, in the fall of 2023, we'll be planting Ascend Bible Church in Perry Township. And I just want you to write another date on your notes, if you would, December 4th. After church, there's going to be a vision meeting for the Ascend Bible Church plant. And I would just encourage us, one of the habits I believe uh, God has called us as a church family to get into is just every time you hear of the potential of another church being started, that you would just bring that before the Lord. And just ask, ask him, Lord, what do you, what do you have for us in that? Um, we're, we're, one of our greatest hopes is that as we grow up as a ministry, that, ch- that all of us would see church planting not just as something your church does, but as something we all do. And so um, just bring that before the Lord and ask him. For some of you, you might be in that vision meeting on December 4th because it makes sense. You live in Perry Township. You've been driving down from there. Others of you, like the Lord might be stirring in your heart to be in that vision meeting, and it won't make sense. But you just sense a stirring. And so December 4th, after church, more details on that to come. But I wanted to start with that today. Um, one of the things that is really important for us as we, uh, as we think about how we interact with God is that we hold uh, in the fullness this reality on one hand that God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Uh, he is so other than us. He is so different than us in that way. He is unblemished, and he is completely pure in every way. And so we hold this fullness on one hand that God is holy. We also have to hold in fullness on the other hand that this holy God desires to draw near. And, and I know if we've like grown up in church or around the Bible, like we might have lost the awe of that. But if we just kind of, I just want us to stop and really think that a holy God who is so different than us desires to draw near to us. He's transcendent and he's near. He's transcendent and he's personal. And, and when, we, when we really think about that, man, that stirs our hearts to a place of deep worship. I want us to hold the fullness of both of those things as we study what we're going to study today. Today, Mo, uh, God, as he meets with Moses, is going to give Moses some instructions on what's to be built in their midst. Uh, there's, this, this, there's this portable structure that God instructs that is to be built and it's, and, it's, and it's to be set up when they encamp somewhere and it's to be taken down and moved with them as they move. And if you've grown up around the church, you, you know the name for this thing is, is called the tabernacle. But, but, I, but I want us to see something in our Bibles here at the beginning of Exodus 25 uh, of how God instructs, begins the instruction for the, for the building of this tabernacle. Exodus 25 verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. 
And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Now just stop there. Uh, this struck me this week. Uh, remember that what we're studying right now, uh, the Israelites are a nomadic people. They're on the move. They're walking. They're on foot. And we read this section here of all of these contributions that they're to bring to the Lord for the construction of this tabernacle. And you're like, where in the world are they getting all these things? Let me remind us, as they left Egypt, the Lord and his providence allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. Like the Egyptians are like, get out of here. And all the people are like, and here's all our stuff. And these are the things that they'll now bring for the contribution for the construction of the tabernacle, including a whole lot of gold that they'll need for elements of the holy place and the most holy place. But then verse 8 really sits as the centerpiece of everything we're studying here today. And verse 8 in, in chapter 25 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? What's the word? That I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so this whole next section of Exodus uh, is on the construction of this sanctuary or this tabernacle. The word sanctuary literally means holy place. The word tabernacle means dwelling. And so God is going to give instruction for a holy place to be constructed where he will come and dwell with his people. A holy God, once again, drawing near. Now, this God, this holy God who draws near, it wasn't just true for his people then, it's also true for us now. And the big idea today is simply this, God dwells with us. Do you believe that? It's really good news. And I, and I want us to see throughout all of redemptive history, throughout all of the history of the Bible, this is what we've seen, that God desires to dwell. We saw it in the garden with Adam and Eve. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. We see it with the tabernacle of which we'll study here and how the Israelites, even when they were on the move from their bondage of Egypt towards the promised land, there was a very tangible sense of the manifest presence of God. We saw the permanent structure uh, after the tabernacle of the temple be built where God's presence would manifest among his people. And then uh, the, 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 like the greatest thing, the, the greatest mystery happened and that God became flesh and dwelt among us. So uh, next month we're going to celebrate once again the reality, Emmanuel, God with us in the form of Christ. And then after Jesus ascends, he sends his spirit, his spirit indwells us. For those who have believed in Jesus Christ in this room, the Holy Spirit indwells you. God's desire to dwell with us. And then one day we will dwell in a new city perfectly in his presence forever. And so from beginning to, you know, from, 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 from the very beginning to eternity future, we have a God who desires to dwell with us. And we're going to see that manifest in the, the, the instructions for the construction of this tabernacle. Now, I, I want to tell you how I'm going to attack today, how I'm going to tackle today. Um, in each of these sections of the different furnishings of the tabernacle, there's basically three elements. There's what is to be constructed, how it's to be constructed, and why this element is to be constructed. I'm going to focus today on the what and the why. 
I'm going to leave for you and your reading this week the, the detailed sections on like how they're to go about building these different elements. But then what I want to do in each of these sections after we talk about what is to be built, why it's to be built, I want us to see how all of these things point us to the greater tabernacle of Jesus Christ who is to come. And, and I, want you, I want to show you in the Bible that I don't believe that's like some allegorical stretch. As, the, as John begins his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we find these words. And the word became flesh and, what's the word? Dwell. It literally means, the Greek word literally means the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John's doing something in his gospel very intentionally. When he talks about Jesus, he's talking about Jesus as the one, the greater tabernacle who would come and dwell among us. And there's different elements through the Gospel of John. I'm going to pull into the different elements of the tabernacle here today because my hope is we don't just learn information about the tabernacle, but it transforms our heart to a deeper placer of worship of Jesus as our greater tabernacle. Amen? That's why, spoiler alert, when we finish Exodus to start the year, we're going to the Gospel of John because those things connect so, so deeply. So let me pray. Let me ask for God's help and let's get into it. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, we're not. And yet in your love for us, you draw near. Amaze our hearts with that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the first element we're going to look at today is the, is the Ark of the Covenant. So let me give you the point here. It's this, the Ark of the Covenant, the holy and merciful presence of God. The holy and merciful presence of God. Look at what it says here in Exodus 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. And so uh, let me just get a picture in front of you. No picture does any of these things justice, but it gives us an idea of what we're working with. Uh, this is the, the Ark of the Covenant. It was, to me, it was a wooden box made of acacia wood, but it was overlaid entirely in gold. You'll notice every piece of furniture that will be inside the actual tent of the holy place and the most holy place covered in pure gold. It is, it is totally pure gold. And then, um, I, I don't want this simple fact to be lost on us. Verse 16, if you jump down to verse 16, tells us the, the purpose of the ark. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, that, that's a pretty simple statement. But every covenant that was made, uh, every testimony between two parties, would have a box that it would be kept safe in. You and I do the same thing. Ours probably isn't covered in pure gold, but you have a place you keep your marriage license. You have a place you keep birth certificates. You have a place, I hope, you keep all of your important documents. Um, mine's not pure gold. It's an accordion folder from Walmart, right? And it, but, but this is the same way. The purpose of this ark or this box was to hold the covenant, was to hold the testimony. Now, it's really neat when you look at the detail God goes into of the lid that is to sit on top of this box. And it's really important and helps us understand better who God is. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half, cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two, what's your Bible say? Two what? Two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. 
Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim, now picture this, they shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And now this is really cool. God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. A desire of this holy God to commune and meet with his people. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this lid on the ark called the mercy seat, two cherubim on either side, looking at one another, wings spread. And the Lord says, I will, Moses, I will meet with you there. We will talk there. We will commune there. But now, it's important for us to understand a bit of the cherubim. In our culture, when you hear of cherubs, you think of this, right? It's not a very biblical understanding of cherubim. In the Bible, when cherubim are brought up, they're brought up for the purpose of guarding. So I want out of our head this, and I want more in our head this right here, okay? The garden is, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, it says a cherubim with flaming, like, I don't think that was a chubby baby floating, right? And so, like, we, but, but there's something to that. The Lord is saying the, the elements of this ark are to be guarded. They're not to be approached lightly. There's a holiness to this. In chapter 26, you don't have to go there, but, but put up this diagram, just this simple diagram of the tabernacle area. Chapter 26 tells us that this ark is to go inside the tent. The tent is divided into two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. The ark is to sit in the most holy place. And that ark is to be guarded by a veil or a curtain in which cherubim, again, are stitched into it to guard the, this, this aspect of the holiness of the presence of God. Now, what's amazing for us as we sit here on this side of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is that as we think about the holiness and the mercy of God, as God became flesh and dwelt among us, his holiness was manifest on earth. Do you remember when when he told Peter, like, go out again, try fishing again. And Peter's like, we've fished all day, dude. We're not. And he's like, no, do it again and throw the net out. And they reel in all the fish. And do you remember what Peter's response is? Anyone? It wasn't, that's a lot of fish. It was, get away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You, you are holy. The, this holiness was manifest. But also in the person of Jesus Christ, that God calls the seat, or the yeah, the seat, the lid on top of the ark, the mercy seat. The mercy of God was manifest, again and again and again. And as we think about the holiness of God, separated by a veil in the tabernacle, when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil was what? The veil was torn, and we now have entrance into a right relationship with a holy and perfect God through. The veil-tearing work of Jesus Christ. And so you have this element of the ark. Uh, the, The Bible quickly goes into the description of another element here, the table. 
the table here in verse 20 or in chapter 25 the table is this the providing presence of God let's look at what it says about the table verse 23 it says you shall make a table of acacia wood two cubits shall be its length a cubit its breadth and a cubit uh, a cubit and a half its height again we're told verse 24 you shall overlay it with pure gold and then if you jump down to verse 30, it says this, and you shall set the bread of the presence, capital P, presence, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. There's this to be this, this bread offering, this bread of the capital P presence that is to be set on this table, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The table sat on the northern curtain of the tent of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It sat in the holy place and the priest would come in and every Sabbath they would have ready another stack of fresh bread and the priests alone would eat of this fresh bread. But you have this picture of a table here that God instructs that a table be put into the holy place, uh, communicating this provision and communion sense of God with his people. The way in which God would provide fresh bread for the priests every week and a way in which the priests would come with a bread offering to the Lord every single week. Now, I don't believe it's lost again that as Jesus is unpacking many of the things he says in his I am statements in the gospel of John that he says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That Jesus, again, has come as the greater bread of the presence. The providing sense of God satisfying of our heart. I just look at you today and say that we had a conversation around our dinner, our dinner table with our young kids about this. And, and um, had a good discussion about us. But I just want to say to you, if you're in the room today, you're not a Christian. Maybe you grew up in church even. You have a lot of understanding about who Jesus is, but you've never believed on him. Uh, Today, I would just ask that you would surrender your life to the bread of life. There's all sorts of, 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 of things out there that promise the satisfaction of your heart. And if you're like me, you have all found how low those things fall and how deeply unsatisfying they are. But Christ holds himself out to you today as the bread of life for your heart to feast on. And this is the ultimate providing presence of God. Across from the table in the holy place sat the lampstand. In verse 31, we find this. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers be of one piece with it. Uh, that hammered gold was actually 75 pounds worth of hammered gold. So sometimes we see a menorah and we can't get a sense of exactly what that lampstand would have been like sitting in the holy place of the tabernacle. But that, that lampstand had a deep purpose to it. And you see an interesting phrase here in verse 37 of Exodus 25. It says this, You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so, so uh, as to give light on the space in front of it. That's an interesting phrase. The lamps are set up to give light on the space in front of it. 
But this is the only source of light you have in the tent area. And so when the priest would pull a curtain back, the curtain would fall back. It's the lamps that would light up the holy place. You had the lamps on your left-hand side as you're walking in. You, 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 they had their, um, the table on the right-hand side. And this, these lamps were to be burning all the time. Part of the priest's jobs was to tend the lamp in the morning, tend the lamp in the evening. And with the burning presence of the light in the holy place, there was a sense of being communicated of God's presence with his people always as well. And so the, the third thing I want us to understand regarding the lampstand is this. The lampstand is the light of the presence of God. You see this picture throughout all the Bible. Um, if you think about what we studied to begin this calendar year and our series on the seven churches of Revelation, uh, Jesus would call them to repent. And then he would say, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove my what? I'm going to remove what? The lampstand. And so you get this sense that the, the lampstand and the light which comes from it always burning is a sense of the presence of God in their midst all the time. Again, John references this in his gospel by recording what Jesus says here. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we believe in Jesus, we now walk in the light of the presence of God. Apart from Jesus, we walk in darkness. And Jesus has come as the greater lampstand, the light of the world, who is to light our way throughout our journey with the Lord. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 25, chapter 26 is going to unpack for us how all the curtains were made to construct this tabernacle, how the poles would be erected, how uh, the curtains would be overlaid. Um, I, I, I'm going to leave that for your reading, but one of the things I want to say about that is when we, when, we, when we think about this tent, the holy place and the most holy place, it, it can be hard to get a grasp of like how big are we talking this thing really was. Um, to help with that, the, the holy place and the most holy place were 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. How many of you, when it comes to measurement, you're like, I still have no idea like what that even means. Uh, if you look at the end of the stage and you let your eyes fall all the way over to the end of the baptistry, that's about 45 feet. So when you think holy place, most holy place, we're talking something about that long. When you think about 15 feet, if you start at the beginning of our stage and you come back all the way to like this line of instruments here, that's about 15 feet. And so chapter 26 is the instruction of how all of the curtains and the poles are to be set up to, to make the tent a holy place and the most holy place. But then as you come to chapter 27, there's now some instruction on what is to sit outside of the tent. What will confront the people as they're coming in to the tabernacle court? Look at Exodus 27, verse 1. It says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with, is it gold or what? With bronze. So the, this fourth element I want us to understand is the bronze altar. This is what I'll call the sacrifice into the presence of God. 
The elements that were outside of the tent and sat in the court were not made of gold. They were made of bronze. And so if you can picture walking into the court area, the first thing you were confronted with was a seven and a half foot wide, seven and a half foot long, four and a half foot high, massive altar. On that altar would go the burnt offerings to atone for the sin of the people. And right away, when the people would have walked into that court, they were confronted by the reality that there is no entrance into the presence of God without the shedding of blood. There is no entrance towards the presence of God without sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says it like this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But if I can encourage us to, to try to picture the altar atop of our, our, the bronze altar, a sacrifice on top of the bronze altar... And to let that picture drive us to a sacrifice atop of a tree in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us some really good news about that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice who has sacrificed for our sin in such a way that when you walked into church this morning, there wasn't a bronze altar meeting you for you to place another animal to atone for your sin. Praise God for his once and for all sacrifice. Amen. But that's what it confronted the people when they walked into the courtyard. Now, Chapter 27 ends, again, with a, a kind of an overview of how the courtyard um, was structured. I, I'm not going to read it, but here's, uh, here's video footage from that, where they camped. Um, that was a joke, but it's just an animation. Um, thanks for the pity laugh. This will just kind of give you a sense of the court area. And again, as you watch this animated video and you're kind of like, again, how big are we talking? We're talking 150 feet by 75 feet. If you're like, that still doesn't help me. I want you to picture from the 50-yard line to the goal line of a football field long and then half the amount of a football field wide. So that's the area that every time they would move, they would, they would and there's all the instructions in the Bible of how this thing gets packed up and how this thing gets moved, and the role of the different tribes of, you know, parts of Levi's tribe that would help do that. And then they would get it all set back up with this court around and the tent right there and that big altar confronting people as they came into the court. But now, if you will, uh, from where we're at in chapter 27, just flip a couple pages to chapter 30. Next week, we'll be back to chapters 28 and 29 as we look at priesthood and the importance of priesthood. But in chapter 30, it picks up a couple more, more of the elements of the tabernacle, and we pick it up with the altar of incense. And here's what I'll say about the altar of incense. The altar, altar, the altar of incense is, the, is communing with the presence of God. This picture of communing with the presence of God. 
chapter 30, verse 1, it says, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and with two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it, here it is, with pure gold. If you jump down to verse 7, it's told how, how this altar is to function. Verse 7, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And so uh, on, our, on our diagram here, and this diagram is not perfect, but at least gives us an idea. You come into the holy place, um, and, and again, on your, on your left-hand side was the lampstand, on your right-hand side was the table, but right in front of you. Now imagine all of the senses involved here for the priests as they came in. The light that filled the room, and right in front of them is this altar of incense. And, and you would see the smoke going up before the Lord as a, as a fragrant offering. And now throughout Scripture, incense is often associated with the prayers of God's people. Psalm 141 verse 2 says it like this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. All the way at the end of our Bible, we find these words. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so right outside of this veil that separated the holy uh, place from the most holy place was an altar of incense with the, with the, with the smoke arising communicating this communing sense of the presence of God, the prayers of his people that he hears. But I believe also the placement of that altar of incense is, yes, about the communing sense of the presence of God and the prayers of his people that he hears, but I believe it also is a great pointer to the intercession of Jesus Christ, who's the one who, like we said before, actually makes a way into the most holy place. When we think about the intercession of Christ, Hebrews 9, 24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's a good intercessor on our behalf, isn't he? And so you have the altar there. But now last thing I want to highlight. Back outside the tent in the courtyard is the bronze basin. And the bronze basin, I'll say it like this, purified in the presence of God. Purified in the presence of God. Chapter 30, verse 17. It says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet 
so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So between the the altar and between the tents sat this bronze basin. The Aaron and his sons, before they would enter the tent, they would come and they'd wash their hands and they'd wash their feet because there's no going into the tent unclean. No going into the tent defiled. Before they would make their way to the altar to offer a food offering to the Lord, they'd wash their hands, they'd wash their feet, because to go and to make an offering like that defiled would lead to their death. This, again, gets at the holiness of our God. So it was a place that they would be purified from defilement, purified from their uncleanness. For the last time today, if I can just take us from the bronze basin and point us to Jesus Christ. Praise God for the purifying work of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.7 says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We are a people again who did not walk into a place of worship today with bronze basins by the door for us to wash off our defilement because all of the stain of our sin has been washed by the blood of Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood. Who knows it? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their... You're like, oh, please, no. Come on, you want me to? I know know what I can do and I know what I can't do. (laughs) We would sing that as a kid. And I'd be like, what is this song about? There's a fountain filled with blood. Think about it. We have been purified by the blood of our Savior. Now, I just want to ask this. Bible-believing, gospel-believing people. Did you walk in here today? I bet you walked in here today fully convinced that the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to free you from the penalty of sin. But did you walk in here today equally believing that the blood of Jesus Christ also has the power to cleanse you from the stain of your sins? Because I I wonder sometimes if we as Christians, we believe in the penalty delivering power of the blood of Jesus, but we can still have this this thought that it's like, when I'm before the Lord one day, he's going to let me in, but he's going to be like, man, that's ugly. Yeah, you can come in because I died for you, but... Look at all that stain. No. Before him one day, having believed in Jesus Christ, we're freed from the penalty, and we are robed in the beauty of Christ's righteousness in which our heavenly Father looks on us with delight because of the work of Jesus. Lose all their guilty stains. I believe that comes to bear for some of us in the room who really struggle 
with certain stains in your past that you believe the blood of Jesus isn't powerful enough to cleanse from. Let me remind you today, the blood of Jesus is powerful to purify from any of those stains. Praise God. And so to close, this picture here of the full tabernacle, if we can just kind of imagine the people would walk in, they'd be confronted by that bronze altar with animal sacrifices on top of it for the atonement of sin. Praise God that the cross of Jesus Christ has atoned for that once for all. They, they'd see the bronze basin where the priests would have to come and be purified before they could enter the present. Praise God for the purifying work of Jesus Christ. The priest would come into the holy place. You'd have the bread of presence. You'd have the light of the lanthanum. You had the altar of incense. Praise God for the communing nature of God. And then praise God that what once separated us from the true picture of the holiness of God was a veil. That veil has been torn, by two, but, torn in two by the work of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, greater tabernacle who has served on our behalf. Amen.